Dr. Rob Gossage is a senior colleague and mentor of mine, and I know a lot about Rob. In fact, without question, Rob is the colleague that I spent, have spent the most time with. I feel he is the backbone of our department, as he likes to create time and space for his colleagues to gather and share. Normally a listener in a big group, today I get to put him on the hot seat and have him share his life journey. If nothing else, he has taught me to capture and savor life's moments and be grateful. So lean in as I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Robert Gossage. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod. Today on the podcast, we have one of my favorite mentors and certainly somebody who I spend probably too much time with, <laughs> at least not right now, is Dr. Robert Gossage. Rob, welcome yes. to the pod. Oh, thank you very much. So, uh, Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a full professor in the uh, chemistry department at, uh, at Ryerson University. And my areas of research interest are inorganic chemistry and catalysis and ligand design and things like that. Perfect. We're going to go to, we're going to take a little uh, spin through your history here. Did you okay. always want to be a researcher when you were a kid? A researcher? Um, yeah, you're, that's currently your role now. So I'm just curious. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure if I knew what a researcher was when I was a kid. I, I was always interested in science per se. Uh, particularly uh, like like space science more than you know more than the sort of science that I do now which is chemistry so I suppose yes although I'm not sure if you if you asked you know my 10 year old self if I if I knew what a researcher was I probably wouldn't be able to tell you but but I guess yes would be the answer to that did you did you want to be an astronaut or did you want to just be involved in like shooting things into space like what was the, the uh, it's cool because you lived in a time when it was it was very interesting, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if I ever thought about being an astronaut. I mean, I was always uh, quite interested in aviation, generally, and I still am, And in fact. I, I don't think I was ever had the lofty aspirations to be a spaceman or space person or how, how they would refer to it now. I mean, I guess when I was a kid, those people were either soviets or americans there wasn't really anybody else that was doing it right uh, it was before the time of the international space station and the fact that many countries sent their you know highly qualified researchers into space it was really only those two countries that were doing it so i, I think that that was not something that was on my radar during the, when the time when i was a kid fair uh, but, fair. It, so, but it did so, interest me for sure so where, where let's go where was hometown I grew up in Burlington, Ontario, not uh, not that far from Toronto. And so, where did you do your undergraduate degree? I went to the University of Guelph. And were you in chemistry? Uh, no, not originally. I, uh, you know, back in in that time, a sort of up and coming field, thanks to people like you know David Suzuki, was genetics. And I actually started out in the genetics program. And I switched into chemistry after my first year. So I actually, not only did I switch majors, but I sort of went to, you know, inter-faculty. So I had, to, I had to go from the faculty of biological sciences to the faculty of physical sciences. So I, I made that switch. What was the, you mentioned, Dave, you mentioned David Suzuki, but what was the draw to, um, to genetics? 
Well, I mean, it was a big deal back then. It, it appeared to be like this was the beginning, I suppose, if you want to think about it, of like, you know, genetically modified materials and understanding the like the genetic basis of life. And, you know, being able to do things like DNA screening, like those were new things and they were in the news and they were in the, not only the, the popular news, but they were highly topical research areas. And that, that kind of interested me. Yeah. That's what sparked my interest in that particular area. So you transitioned from genetics to chemistry. What was yeah. the rationale behind that transition? Well, it's a rather dubious one, I think, to some extent, because, uh, you know, we're all, uh, what is it, the guitarist for the Grateful Dead used to say, that the, t the tone and sound of the way that I play is simply a manifestation of my limitations as a musician. And I, I realized when I went to university that, that uh, although I was very interested in, in genetics and biology, and in fact, I still am, that my ability to actually succeed scholastically in those areas was not going to happen. <laughs> that, you know, my particular skill set was just not fitting into that. And so I looked at, uh, you know, my grades at the end of first year and I was like, look, this is, this is not working out in what I'm doing here. And, and so I had done reasonably well in chemistry and physics. And so I decided that perhaps it would be wise if I went down that pathway instead. So that's kind of what happened. I think you could already, you've already answered this question, but were you a good student? Let's talk about the transition to chemistry. Once you were in chemistry, were you a good student? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I think you know, I wonder. My, my initial self-evaluation that I would do much better by switching into chemistry scholastically in terms of my grades did not actually come to fruition in my second year. <laughs> I actually think it's quite poetic the way you described the, 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 the transition, the limitations, if you will. I mean, you know, there was, a, there was definitely a, like a, like, there was a thought process that was going on there, but it wasn't necessarily a successful one. You know? uh, so, so no, I would not have considered myself a very good student once I switched over. Now, having said that, I would say that Although the courses that I was taking, I was not particularly doing well scholastically at, I think that I found them more interesting than what I had been doing. Like, I, I think that I, I found that there was something there that was more interesting than, than my original plan when I went to university, which I'm sure is true for many people. So when did you when did you make the transition? You, you went on to do your PhD. So what was it that in your undergraduate experience that sort of facilitated that transition? Well, I suppose it's when I, I in the winter of second year, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of times, and I, I'm sure we'll discuss this later in this interview. A lot of times, there's you know a certain amount of luck that that comes into well, it comes into your life that leads you in a certain direction and not another, perhaps, and. I was uh, unfortunately one of those that was scheduled to do for my first inorganic chemistry course. It was the, what was referred to by many of my colleagues as the dreaded night lab. Now, <laughs> unlike at Ryerson, which runs its Chang School in the evening, at Guelph, a lot of the courses ran uh, some of their laboratory sections 
after six o'clock in the evening. They, they ran from 6.30 to 9.30. And that was simply because of space restrictions. Because uh, even in my day, in, in, for example, in first year chemistry, there was well over, I think there must have been 1,400 students. I remember there were seven, there, I think there were six or seven sections of the course that had different lecturers. And so labs ran three times a day, Monday to Thursday, and twice on Friday in many different rooms. So in first year, there might be eight labs running simultaneously from 2 to 5 p.m. And although uh, certainly inorganic chemistry in second year was not, was not a, a course of that size, it was large enough that they needed a lab section in the evening. And that's the one that I got stuck into. And it happened to, be get, get, to get stuck into with somebody that became kind of one of my mentors. And so I liked the approach of that particular lab, and I think that's what kind of led me into into my career to some extent. So you were always better at the at the lab stuff, and and you got some favorable mentorship that sort of encouraged you that maybe research would was interesting. So where did you go to do your PhD and and that transition? I went to do my PhD at uh, the University of Victoria, and, and I. Perhaps the, the pod people don't know this, but we are both alumni of that department uh, at, at that. that level. You know, a number of sort of strange reason, reasons. I, I certainly didn't know anyone in Western Canada. In fact, I didn't know anyone that was west of Thunder Bay at the time. And I had applied to three different schools and I'd been accepted in two of them. I'd been accepted at Queens and I was accepted in Victoria and I went to visit both of them. And I met with some people and graduate students and saw the facilities and what have you. And I decided that I would go out west. I guess to some extent, I mean, it's hard to leave all your family and friends and, and, and completely. But, you know, at some point you have to kind of do that. And so I guess for me, to some extent, it was a chance to have a completely clean slate. Like I said, I didn't know anyone there. So it was a chance to sort of like start all over again, if you know what I mean, at yeah. least in terms of my academics. Like this was a new phase and, and nobody knew me. So the sky's the limit, if you like to think of it like that. Yeah. And so you, you had a, a good PhD. We've all, we've talked a lot about your, your supervisor and I don't want to get into to too many details about that. What was your, uh, what was your transition after your PhD? What'd you do next? Uh, after I finished uh, working in Victoria, I got a, um, I had applied during the, my last year for a scholarship to, to do research in Europe in, in what is now called the Mary Curie scholarships, oh, uh, because I'm a, I'm a, I was at the, by that point, I had become a dual citizen. So I was a, I'm not only a Canadian citizen, I'm also a citizen of the UK. So I was allowed to apply for grants to do postdoctoral research in Europe. And I'd wanted to go to Europe for a lot of reasons. I'd visited there a couple of times and I wanted to go there to, more to see what the lifestyle was like there and how it differed, how it was different than North America. And so I'd applied for one of these scholarships with a professor in the Netherlands, uh, Gerard van Koten. But actually that scholarship was turned down. And so when I finished my PhD, I was like, oh man, I, I better find something to do because I, I was almost about to be the chemist living under the stairs at, at this point. <laughs> uh, but then uh, he offered me a, a six month contract to come out there, despite the fact that I had uh, the scholarship had not been successful. And so, so that's where I ended up going after that. 
and you were there for a few years, a couple of years, and then yeah, you... I was there for just just a bit north of two years, eventually. Yeah. And then you came back to Canada and did what? I worked for a R and D pharmaceutical company just outside of Vancouver in Langley, British Columbia, which is really now kind of a suburb of Vancouver. That company was called Anermed. It 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 no longer exists. It was but it was bought out by a pharmaceutical company about 15 years ago, based in, in Massachusetts. Uh, but I worked there initially when I came back to Canada. So I went back to the West Coast, although, hey, although to Vancouver, not to Victoria. And so when you, before you came to Ryerson, you actually had another little, uh, you started your independent career elsewhere. So tell us a little bit about that experience and then how you got transitioned to Ryerson. After I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for about a year, I realized that actually what I wanted to do more was my own sort of research career and teaching. It was it was something that was that was a, I was more into, and so I had I had applied for a position out in east far eastern Canada in Nova Scotia at Acadia University, which is a small liberal arts school there, and I got that job. Yeah, you literally went from coast to coast. Quite literally, yes. I wasn't on the uh, the Eastern Atlantic coast, but I was on the Bay of Fundy coast, so it was pretty close. Uh, so yeah. I started my independent career, like as an academic, if you like, then there, and I was there for nine years. And then there was an advertised position at Ryerson, which was in my area, which I applied for and. And I interviewed for it, and they offered it to me. So that so thereafter, I uh, I came uh, came here. And I'm and I'm certainly glad that you are here because I don't I couldn't imagine the way this department would look without you. So uh, let's let's well, talk I, a little bit. Some might your... say some might say it would look better without me. <laughs> I'm smiling, but I'm shaking my head. <laughs> uh, so, but tell us a little bit in. We have a wide audience, but what is what's your research program here now? What are you studying? Um, the Coles Notes version of it. Sort of Coles Notes version. Well, we make um, what are referred to as small molecules, so not things like polymers or plastics. We make small molecules that contain metals, and we look at their properties. Uh, and those properties can be anything from you know simply what they what their structure is at the molecular level to their biological activity to some extent, or their catalytic activity, so you use them to make other molecules in, a, in an energy efficient manner. Uh, I think that's kind of the Coles Notes version, if that's enough for this. Uh, yeah, no, and, and it's inorganic, so you make a lot of transition metal complexes that have both organic right. synthesis. Like, you know, metals that you, you know, may be familiar with, like uh, copper or gold or zinc, and Probably for the you know for the general audience, a lot of metals that you might not be so familiar with, like you know vanadium or ruthenium or you know cadmium or something like that. So yes, and a lot of people don't realize or appreciate how often these catalysts are used in various applications, just not as catalysts but also materials. Oh yeah, I mean like you know your uh, you know let's say your car for example uh, contains. You know, a fair amount of a lot of different types of metals in terms of uh, metal alloys, in terms of metals, for example, that are used in your catalytic converter, metals in the structure of your vehicle, in the safety mechanisms of your vehicle, uh, you know, and all kinds of things like that. So it's a, it, it's a, it's a big industry. Uh, 
which is why like the mining industry, of course, is, is, you know, gigantic worldwide. And of course, still very large in Canada. What would you say that you like best about your job? Well, I mean, it, it gives me at least a, to some extent uh, a certain amount of freedom to kind of um, explore topics that I'm interested in and to sometimes uh, to a, a level of effectiveness that we could argue to uh, <laughs> to tell other people about those areas that interest me and why they interest me and why students or other people or members of the public or even my colleagues, why they might want to be interested in the sort of things that I'm able to study because of the freedom that this kind of job allows you to, uh, to explore. Perfect. And what do you like least about your job? I must admit, uh, a, a grading tests is, is, is not really up there in terms of my fun scale. Yeah, I, I find that and have for my entire career. It's not like it's, it's suddenly got better over the years. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's got significantly worse, but it's, it's just a task that you sort of dread. And, and why is that? What is it? What is well, it that you, you don't like? Of, you got a pile of exams on your desk and you know you have to do them in a certain time. And you know that it's a kind of a joyless escapade to mark them. Errors that are made are repeated by many people. So you see the same errors. Now, mind you, you see the same successes too, which is nice. I mean, like I said, well, like I've said to many people, there's two types of exams that are extremely easy to grade. There's the, the one unfortunate case where whoever submitted the exam knew very little about the material. So there's, there's not much to mark. And the opposite of that is, is somebody that knows everything and they simply just give you the answers and you just read through and you put check marks because they just know everything <laughs> that they're yeah, that they yeah. Should for that. I certainly, I certainly agree. Those are the two easiest to mark. Yeah. Uh, but it's the gray area in between, which is, a, you know, quite often, not surprisingly, a large percentage of them where, you know, people are, have some idea, but maybe they're struggling with a few things, but they really do understand other things and you've got to, you have to learn how to be objective so you're marking everybody in the same kind of ballpark. And yeah. so that, mm -hmm. that, that can be, it's time consuming and not, not the greatest fun, but I mean, you know, it's, it's all, it has, a, it has a high suck quotient. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not sure you could say that on a podcast, but it's just, I think you can. Since yeah. you did, I, I guess I'm okay with that. Yeah, you can swear we can do everything on a podcast. That's the best part. What inspires you most about your job? Well, I probably shouldn't say Friday afternoon. That would be a <laughs> actually. I mean, to be quite honest with you, what inspires me most is is typically the students. For some reason, <laughs> I'm not sure if I inspire them, but they inspire me. It's interesting to see, um, you know, people actually learn stuff. And, and like, you know, I remember, you know, even though I'm ancient now, you know, I remember sitting where they were you know, about to switch majors, like, you know, when I was in first year, knowing I was going to switch majors. And, you know, once you do, and, and, and you know, somebody says something in a lecture, and occasionally it's even me, and uh, you, you see the sort of light bulb go on on people's faces, and they ask you a question about that, that is at suddenly a really, really high level, even though the course might not be at a very high level. And you realize that you've sort of like turned a light bulb on to somebody. They suddenly see that all this like, you know, 
since we're allowed to swear on these podcasts, the kind of bullshit that you always give in terms of lectures, in terms of material, they suddenly see that this material is actually important in terms of like something real and something that they find interesting. So I, I guess that's the angle. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I think generally, I think that describes you well and not only your past experiences, but it, it's conveying interest to people, whether it be yours, whether why we should be studying this or whether they pull on that thread and then all of a sudden you can see that, that room light up. So mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. And, and just for the podcast people, when Rob said Friday afternoon, it's because he usually hosts a very, very awesome event weekly where the faculty and staff will have a few beverages and, and share Com commiserate commiserate is that the, no it's not commiseration it's it's celebration of a week that we've all had wonderfully and we get to share it with each other so that that is some that's an institution at ryerson that cannot be overlooked for well i mean it's a it's an opportunity for people to uh you know to talk about problems they might have had during a week and you know when you for example if it's a, somebody that's uh you know just started out lecturing like a new faculty member they there's a lot of like, you know, pitfalls you can fall into. And so they'll ask questions and there's 10 people there that have been there a hundred times over that can give them a hand. So it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. It's and like very said, useful. As, as Brian said, it's not just the faculty, the staff are there too, and they've got issues. And, and so it's a, it's a bit of an, an informal venue for them to, you know, explain what issues they're having. And then we can kind of sit down and work some of them out without having to, you know, without having to have a like like a huge hue and cry and and meeting official meeting about stuff. It's just like and it's a it's a it's a really good group share, right? At the end of the day, I think that's we're all in this together, as they say. And it's nice to know that we can talk to people, and it's scheduled. Like it literally is scheduled, so you know that you can always drop by if you need something. Yeah, uh, like some some people drop by once a year, and other people drop by every week. It just depends. Uh, you know, it's completely up to them. It's certainly not obligatory. Yeah. No, it's good fun. Uh, what, what do you, switching gears here, what do you believe are the most important transferable skills that every student should have when they graduate? Transferable or, skills. Yeah. Could you maybe define transferable skills? Exactly? Ones that aren't technical per se, so that doesn't have to be chemistry or biology specific, but something that you would use in each line of work, regardless okay. of whatever. Well, I mean, if you think about it, when you when you graduate with a let's say a BSc in chemistry, because that's what I do, lots of people at that particular moment are also graduating with a BSc in chemistry, and so it's not like you're just a number, but to some extent you kind of are, because people don't know people don't know that you're different than everybody else, and of course they well I suppose they know that, but you need to be able to show them that, and so. In terms of transferable skills, if you, if you think that you're entering the job market, for example, directly, as opposed to perhaps graduate school or something else, some other education that you might want to do, uh, if you enter the job force, you know, what people look at in an interview, yes, they look that, that you have uh, the sort of basic knowledge that's connected to your with your degree and you know when you interview people and i've done this many many times like most people do but when you work in like a like a company whether it's a large company or a small company you're, you're often part of like a unit a smaller unit and you know that unit has certain objectives and certain tasks that it has to do 
on like a weekly, daily, or monthly, or yearly basis. And those people who are interviewing you, there's one thing they don't want to do, and that's hire an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's a primary sort of investigation when they interview people because you have to work with these people every single day and sometimes under relatively stressful conditions like if there is a rigid timeline and things are not going the way that they should and you've got to get the job done you need to be able to work with that team and so they literally do, and I do myself even today, and, and certainly in job interviews, this will happen. It's like, what is the sort of personality of this person that is going to help the team? Because the trouble is when you have somebody that's, that is not helping the team, they don't necessarily get fired right away. But what does happen is everybody else has to make up for the fact that they're not doing it. And so that means they have to work more. And most people don't want to do that either. <laughs> so so I, you, you need I, to make it clear that you're not a self-centered asshole. Yeah. Uh, now, you might, be, I, yeah, you might be. <laughs> and, yeah, you might be. But then they'll have to figure that out later. But definitely don't give that impression when you're interviewing. Yeah. And I, and I think that also I think that what you're – the transferable skill as I understand and something true to the way you are is this idea that you need to be collaborative and that means that you need to be able to work effectively with others regardless of who those others are yeah and I contribute mean, you know a team a team of people like everybody has their strengths initially if you're the junior person your strengths aren't as important as other people perhaps but there but there suddenly become situations where somebody as a team leader will say to you oh, I remember this from your resume, you've done this, what do we do? And yeah. I mean, you better be able to answer that question, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think showing that you can collaborate is really important too. Awesome. Definitely. Uh, so we're gonna, we're gonna switch to the rapid fire stuff now, which are short little answer things, little quirky things that people- uh, how, do you how do you define short? Cause I can rarely shut up. Uh, no, no, I mean, well, be comfortable in your answer, okay. but you'll see that the way the question's worded. And if you don't have an answer, we can pass and come back to it, not a problem. And okay. feel free to be as candid as you want. So okay. what factoid do my colleagues know least about me? I don't know. Maybe we could go back to that one. I'm a little puzzled. Yeah. That. I, I, that's fair because you're talking to this colleague and we've spent a lot of times asking questions, but I'm sure there, there's something that maybe only you and I know that maybe or very few people know. Anyway, we'll come back to that. What famous person, current or otherwise, would you most like to go with to dinner with and why? What famous person? Uh, Hedy Lamar, of course. And Hedy Lamar, for those people such as myself who do not know who Hedy Lamar is, but probably okay. should. Uh, Hedy Lamar is most famous as a Hollywood actress in the 1940s and 50s. But what is not very stunningly beautiful woman, I might add, but what is not well known about her is that she was also a scientist and, and a very, very intelligent woman. And worked on a number of projects that led to things like cellular phone development. And during World War II, she worked on things like 
radar guided torpedoes. So she was not just an actress and intellectual, she was an extremely intelligent person. And so I would very much like to have had dinner with her, uh, just to hear her opinions on things about science, because she was also a scientist. And how she managed two two very different careers. <laughs> yeah, two, two very different careers. And, and, you know, during an era where, like, you know, careers for women were quite limited, in fact, uh, particularly yeah. ones that involved science. Cool. What is your uh, favorite food? Well, I mean, if anybody answers this question and it's not pizza, there's something wrong with them. Uh, <laughs> Because you know, I like cheese and I like bread. So if you combine those two together, uh, you create, in fact, the most perfect thing ever. So I would that's 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 a no-brainer. You know what's weird though, because you and I have had lunch together. You do not like tomatoes on your sandwiches, and so cheese and bread and tomatoes is kind of like a pizza. Yeah, but you see, it's a sauce of tomatoes that's that's used for pizza, and of course, it's cooked. It's raw tomatoes. I'm not a gigantic fan of. But if, if what properly is your, prepared, I have no issues. Uh, what is your favorite beverage to accompany that pizza or whatever food you drink? Well, I do eat? like wine, so that would probably also be a no-brainer kind of answer. I think so, too, based on my experience. And what color of wine? Uh, it would be red wine. Excellent. And what is your favorite color? What's my favorite color generally? Yeah. I would say a, a sort of a Prussian blue. Ooh. Very nice color. What, uh, complete this sentence. If I was not a professor at Ryerson, I would like to be. I suppose I'd like to be a National Geographic photographer. That would be nice. And I'm glad you got into that because that's a huge hobby of yours, photography, like massive. And the people who, who on the pod who don't know that, uh, what got you into photography? Well, I suppose uh, to some extent I was into photography long before I was into chemistry. <laughs> what got me into it? I mean, I inherited a couple of cameras from my father when I was relatively young. And I just used to, you know, take pictures occasionally. And I found it, you see, I'm, I'm a terrible artist, but I like art. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea of like drawing and painting and things like that, which or music, you know, all things that I love, I am absolutely dreadful at. However, I can take pictures. And I do understand how, uh, you know, good photographs are, I don't, I'm not suggesting that I do good photographs, but I understand how photographers can take things and make them look interesting to people. So that's kind of, the, you know, the, the reason that I'm into that. Not sure that answered your question. Nope, that's good. No, I, that's where it started. Something in the top 10 of your bucket list. Something you would like to do. Top 10 of my bucket list. Well, I mean, I suppose, you know, since I am into photography, I've never actually uh, photographed. I mean, there's three continents I've never been to. I've never been to South America, Africa, or Antarctica. So I suppose I would like to, you know, my bucket list is to go to those places. Wow. Antarctica, even. That's well, I mean, there's, a, there's a bit of a history of that, and I don't know this is the rapid fire question, and this won't be a rapid fire answer, but there's a history to that to me. Uh, when I finished my undergraduate, the British government was doing a large survey of its Antarctic territory, 
And I actually applied for a job as an analytical chemist uh, coming out of my bachelor's to go to Antarctica to, to help with the survey. And this is back in the day when, when you applied for a job with an actual letter. There, weren't, there wasn't emails or anything. And so I wrote to the British Antarctic Survey, as it was called then, and I applied for this job. And they wrote back to me and they said that they were very interested in my application. And of course, I made a bunch of things like, like you know, I liked Arctic exploration and all this, which, to be honest with you, I didn't, but I just wanted the job. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they said because I was not a UK citizen, that they had to preferentially hire somebody from the UK. This, this is before the European Union was sort of in place. And back then, I did not have dual citizenship, although within about a year and a half, I did. So I sort of missed my opportunity to go to Antarctica kind of for free and get paid. So it's always been a bit on my bucket list. <laughs> very cool. I think it'd be very cool to see as well. Okay, so who is your favorite role model? Or who was your favorite role model? In which role? <laughs> you know any, I mean? any, any, any role you want, because that would be the next little follow-up. Like, so why? Well, I mean, a lot of people say that uh, say their parents are their role models, but I'll, I'll give a bit of a disclaimer there. And it's not that I want to diss my parents at all, because I certainly don't. Uh, my father died when I was very young, and so I didn't actually have him as a role model per se. So, I mean, it may have been him had situations been different, but and. My mother, although uh, is a wonderful person, she's not a scientist. Now she gave me the sort of free reign to explore whatever I wanted without restriction. But in terms of like, you know, what I did in terms of my career, she was not a role model there directly thereof. In terms of, I think it was actually somebody that I worked with as a visiting scientist when I was doing my fourth year project that was kind of my you know, sort of role model. He was a, a British guy that was a prof at the University of Khartoum in the Sudan in Africa. And he was there on a visiting fellowship. And, you know, super nice guy, really good lecturer. And, you know, had an interest in science and a lot of other things like art and literature. And I, you know, we got on very, very well. His name is Keith Fisher. He now lives in Australia. I, I considered him a role model for sure. Cool. Uh, next question. What is your uh, greatest achievement? Greatest achievement? Well, I mean, one hopes I haven't done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Antarctica, when you go. <laughs> well, Actually, I will, I will accept that answer because I've accepted it with somebody else before too. Cause they, they literally just, it was a drop mic moment where they're like, well, we'll just wait and see. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> okay. what has been your, but I won't let you off the hook on this one. What has been your greatest failure so far? How would you define failure? I mean, I suppose some of the well, things. Well, you, you could have learned from it. You could have learned from it. Well, it may, maybe it was a life altering moment that you would have done differently now think you know maybe if i had thought about it i probably should have started out my academic career in chemistry maybe uh, <laughs> i think <clears throat> i think that would have been wise because it took me like you know quite a few years to catch up in fact and you know it's not like i didn't have an interest for chemistry in high school and i, I as far as i remember i was fairly successful at it but i, I guess for some reason i had it in my head that you know, I was going to do a certain thing. And 
it never occurred to me that that could be a potential avenue of interest to me. So I think that's kind of, a, I guess, a failure. But I think when you're like, you know, 16, 17 years old, uh, you know, failure yeah. is part of the game. Yeah, and you can't beat yourself up too much for making mistakes while you're young. No, I mean, Whoa. No. What are you most grateful for? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think still being alive at this point is something to be grateful for. I, you know, the, the podcast people will know this, but I, I had a, a, a massive heart attack about six years ago. And, uh, and you know, under circumstances where if the circumstances had been any different, I probably, we, we probably wouldn't be having this cordial chat. And so it was a, a series of fortuitous events. And, you know, having a heart attack doesn't sound like a fortuitous event, but it, it is when you're in the right situation in which, you know, you're able to get through it. So uh, for the, the details for the listeners, Rob was literally in the hospital when he had his heart attack. So that's a good place to be if you're going to have one. And I would say particularly the sort that I had, which was basically, basically my heart stopped. I was actually clinically dead. And apparently the statistics are, if that doesn't actually happen in a hospital situation, your survival chances are something like 0.44%. And so, you know, given any other day of the week in which that would have happened, like I said, we probably wouldn't be having this cordial chat right now. So I'm, I'm and, pretty grateful for that, at least in terms of its a somewhat fortuitous timing and i would agree because certainly we're we're grateful for these past six years that we got back and so i don't know <laughs> yeah what what concerns you the most like what keeps you up at night the most in terms of like the like the world the the way things are unfolding what concerns you uh, in terms of the way the world's unfolding or maybe there's a trend you're seeing or behavior things that worry you, but just globally, what do you, uh, what well, I mean, I, I think if you look at the last like half decade or even longer than that in most, even most Western countries, I uh, can't really comment on other countries, but I think in most Western countries, things are not getting better for the average person and they really should be. I think the polarization of wealth towards the top, is causing a lot of problems. And we're seeing a lot of those problems even this very day, we're seeing them. Uh, and until that's addressed, you know, I think progress for the average person is gonna be very difficult. And that to me is an issue because it, it's an issue that's not going to go away. And there's ways to solve it, but there's a certain segment of the population that doesn't want to, simply because they benefit mostly from that. And so, so that does bother me. Yeah, I agree. What spot in the world do you most like traveling to? So someplace you've already been. Can I give two answers? Sure, yeah. Am I allowed to? Well, there's two places that are like my favorite favorite countries to be in, and that's uh, Spain and Japan. So, uh, and, I, and I like both those places for completely different reasons, in fact. But that would the be- The food is favorite. fantastic in both though. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, I don't disagree with you at all. And certainly the wine in Spain is, well, it, it's, a, it's a type of wine that I, that I like. I'm not saying what kind of, I'm not suggesting that, you know, that that's the kind of wine that everyone should like, but that's to my palate. And of course, Japan does not produce wine. So, so I like that for different reasons, but, uh, but those would be my two choices for sure. Perfect. And what is your most productive time of day? I suppose when I'm asleep, but although that's not probably. <laughs> uh, 
know, it's funny because I, I, you know, I was never a morning person. But now, in fact, uh, you know, I think that that is the most productive time of the day for me. It's probably between about like, you know, 630 in the morning and noon. Yeah, I, based on what I've seen, that's certainly true. And I think I know this answer and you've already said it. What is your favorite hobby? Oh, no, photography is my favorite hobby for sure. So, you spend uh, enormous amounts of time and money on cameras and things. It's amazing yes, to see it's, all of them. It's all a bit silly, really. And in fact, I'm looking around this room right now. It's a good thing the video is not on. There's, there's several cameras within view. <laughs> Very cool. Question 10. What piece of advice would you give your second yourself? Well, I mean, if, if it's advice about the scholastic issues, uh, I mean, and maybe that's the angle that you're hoping for this question. Or journey, because they could be related. Um, you need to learn how to study. And I was, I did, had not learned that in second year, the way to, the way that I needed to approach learning material that worked for me. And I think the thing is that a lot of people think that there's a, you know, there's, there's one method that works for everyone and there isn't. And so you need to explore what works. And you also need to be able to, you know, sort of put that as a serious objective as to what you're doing on a daily basis. And I think that self-awareness is really important for all people, right? <laughs> and that's another transferable skill, know thyself. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you know, you're not trying to be somebody else, although there's a lot of people that are trying to push and pull you in many directions. And those people can be, you know, the people you work with, they can be your parents, they can be, uh, you know, your lab mates or your roommates or whatever. But, you know, it's, at some point, like I said, one of the reasons perhaps that I went out west all by myself is that now it really was just up to me. There were no expectations from anybody because nobody was going to say anything. Yeah, well, I completely agree. Good stuff. What, are, what right. have been some of your biggest challenges with COVID and this uh, pandemic right now? Well, I mean, you, ha you have to sort of, what we had to do is, is sort of very readily adapt a very different routine than what you're used to. We're all victims of the routines that we like on a daily basis or a weekly basis or yearly basis. And, you know, suddenly most of those things that you probably did on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week or year-to-year -year basis, you were suddenly no longer able to do. And so the readjustment to one's conditions is probably the biggest challenge. Now, the th some people are better than that than others, but once again, you have to realize what your personal limitations are. Like if there's something that really drives you crazy, you better find a way to vent or get out of that in this situation. And there's other things probably that don't drive you crazy about this. Like, you know, maybe there's a lot of people that used to annoy the hell out of you and now you don't have to see them. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, like, you know, that happens, right? I mean, you know, there's, like I said, it's, it's not all terrible. But yeah, I think readjusting to a situation that we were ill prepared for. I mean, I think if we look at the, uh, the way it sort of came down, it was very fast. Now, I think I to some extent the writing was on the wall before they locked down everything. Uh, and I think people should have been more prepared that that was going to be a reality. And I think there was a lot of deniers out there. And I guess there still is to some extent. Yeah. But, you know, that's, that's 
And that's just the game we have to play at this point. For sure. And what is your, what is your silver lining been of this uh, pandemic? Well, I mean, to some extent, you, you get to be a bit in, in, introspective about, about what you're doing on a daily basis, because now you're not discussing it really with anyone. And in fact, you're not really, to, to a large extent, seeing anyone else. So now um, you're sort of trapped with your opinions, but you, I, mean, I think you're able to self-evaluate a certain, certain amount more than you would have otherwise, because you're not being judged by anybody else at this point, at least to a large extent. And so, you know, now you get to judge yourself. Like, you know, am I really doing something here that I want to be doing? Or like, am I really getting, am I getting anything done the way I'm doing this or, or not? Uh, so I think that there are advantages. I mean, there, <laughs> I guess I would say this generally, there are advantages to being by yourself for a while. And that's sort of what yeah. we're doing. And now <laughs> to some extent we didn't want to do it, but I mean, you know, once you are, you know, use it to your advantage if you can. Yeah, no, I agree. And you get a chance to learn yourself the same thing that you had mentioned earlier, where you get an opportunity to sort of just take a pause and think about what's important and what's not. Yeah. And uh, that's refreshing for everybody. Rob, we could we could do this all day. In fact, we're probably going to hit pause and have a drink some at some point. <laughs> but in the interest of time, we're going to leave it there. But I just right. wanted to thank you for this uh, lovely chat and this little introspective, if you will. And we look forward to uh, talking to you again soon and having a drink in person. As well, soon that as would, this be, is all that would certainly be interesting. That is, that is one of the things I miss. Uh, and not just having a drink with you, but, you know, just going to my to my local pub and, you know, seeing some people who are really just casual acquaintances of mine that live around here and, you know, raising a glass with them. I, I think it'll be nice to be able to get back to that kind of, well, whatever you call normality at some point. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Thanks again, Rob. Appreciate this. Okay. All right. And we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you. We'll talk soon. See ya.